in a world of stereotypes, being called a geek comes with a certain image. There is still that ingrained thing within me that is a little bit embarrassed about it. In reality, geek culture has never been more mainstream, and behind every geek is a real story. My dad was the one who got me into Star Wars and things. Join me, your super dummy Paul, as I continue my learning experience and talk to the real people. I'm a secondary school teacher, so I teach 11 to 16 year olds in English. Hear their stories exclusively on fantastic universes. It's one of them like, you've ever gonna grow up? And I'm like, no, why should I? I, I like my life, I, I enjoy what I do, this is my hobby. Available on all your favorite podcast catchers. Welcome to a Pop Gorilla's takeover of Monday. Our good friend and super dummy Paul was not feeling above the weather? Hmm. If he was under the weather, that would mean he was not feeling above the weather. And so there'll be no superheroes for dummies this week. And so we, the Pop Gorillas, are taking over. Make sure you subscribe because you never know when the Pop Gorillas strike next. We are the Pop Gorillas. This is the show where we drop a spoiler-free review of anything from pop culture in less time than it takes to listen to a song. Less a novelisation, more a novel reinterpretation of his latest movie Apis. I assume the people most likely to pick up the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, our novel, are those that are already fans of the movie and want to experience the events depicted in greater depth. They won't be left disappointed. This provides that and more. Yeah, I would implore others to pick it up too, for this is quality pulp fiction. When I first learned this was being released, I wanted the audiobook version, as I assumed it would be read by Tarantino himself. When I learned this wasn't the case, I was disappointed. Having now read the paperback, I can understand why. These are his words, obviously, but it isn't his narration. The omnipotent narrator, with their encyclopedic knowledge of the era's pop culture, is entrenched in this epochal moment in Hollywood history. They're authentic and experienced. Obviously, QT knows his shit, but... Ultimately, he's a fanboy, which is a significant proportion of his appeal. This narrator knows their shit, seriously, but it's detached and elucidative, rather than passionate. Jennifer Jason Lee is actually a really solid choice for the audiobook, with her own Tarantino history, of course, and I may now go back and listen to her reading of it. But, personally, I heard Kurt Russell's voice as I read the book, perhaps led by the fact that he narrated the third act of the movie itself. Or... Perhaps just because his voice is distinctive and cool as all hell, and has genuine gravitas. The benefit of having seen, having seen the film first in this instance is that you've read the lines of dialogue being delivered, and hear the actors' voices that portrayed them. It's a good thing Tarantino's casting was so spot on. DiCaprio played his Rook Dalton as sensitive and sympathetic. That is expressed here too. That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. Like you. Pitt's Cliff Booth, however, is a much less likeable character on the page than he is on the screen without Brad's star power and winning charisma. Adding depth to the vignettes, the sections which especially benefit are the infamous and inflammatory Bruce Lee flashback and the Sharon Tate about LA downtown. It's interesting that these two are components of the film that were criticised upon release, not by me, so the question of whether this is a reaction to that presents itself. I'm not sure, mostly because I don't think Tarantino gives a fuck. I think this is what was in his head whilst writing that screen time doesn't allow. It's welcome. There's also whole chapters dedicated to the actual telling of the Lancer pilot, adding a story within a story's second tier, 
befitting Tarantino in his layered and connected universe. We all know Kill Bill is part of his movie within a movie universe, right? As in, Clarence from Alabama could go to the cinema to see it? These chapters add fuel to my flamethrower about the prospect of the rumoured Bounty Law episodes becoming a reality. One of the most interesting aspects of the novel is its flexibility with time, as we flash forward to experience vignettes from the future before returning to the present, providing new dramatic irony knowledge. This isn't something I recall Tarantino doing before, I may be wrong, but it's something I'd be interested in experiencing in his future work. What really fascinated me the most about this novel, though, was considering the writing process. Clearly, QT was happy enough with his script, as he should have been, to produce it into a movie. And yet, a couple of years later, he is clearly re-evaluating the scenes and constantly reworking character beats that have previously been celebrated. An artist's work is never done. Purportedly the first of two commissioned novels by HarperCollins. On the strength of this, whether it be entirely original or a fresh take on one of his own masterworks, I'll be in the market for what comes next. And the writer, director, now novelist, knocked him dead. Make sure you subscribe, as you never know when the pop grillers will strike next. We are the Pop Gorillas. This is the show where we drop a spoiler-free review of anything from pop culture in less time than it takes to listen to a song. Today, inspired by host of Classic Comics with Matthew B. Lloyd, I've gone back to the beginning of Batman and started reading all of the Batman stories across all, beginning with Detective Comics number 27. DC has published the Golden Age series for Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Batman the Golden Age number one collects Detective Comics 27 through 45, Batman's one through three, which back then Batman was just a quarterly book. It only came out four times a year. And World's New York World's Fair comics number two, which would eventually become World's Finest comics, that had stories of Batman and Superman in them. So what can I tell you? Batman and Robin's origins have not changed at all. Early on, there are pictures of the original Batman origin and the original Robin origin, and they have stayed remarkably similar. We all know that we retcon things, we, we change. Wonder Woman's origin has changed three or four times, slightly, but it's changed. Throughout all of the iterations, through the New 52, through everything, it appears that Batman has stayed. What has been fascinating about this run is that Bob Kane is, of course, credited as the sole writer, artist, everything of the Batman, and everything is signed by Batman by Bob Kane. And we know now that Bill Finger wrote a lot of those stories, but Bob Kane took the credit. However, what's fascinating is reading them in a row like this, you can clearly see that there are different writers and different artists. The tone changes. Some of them are way more silly than others. Some of them are way more sassy than others. The the art style and, and Bob Kane's art style is uh, Batman's got the long ears and it's way more kind of creepy looking, but also a lot more simple. And then as Jerry Robinson comes in, you can see the difference between the artist. Uh, Sheldon Moldoff is there. Uh, George Rosos is there. And these are just different artists. Bob Kane's signature is, is everywhere. So that was the most fascinating thing about the art style itself. Some of the stuff I haven't enjoyed about this is to learn that in the first appearance of Catwoman, Bruce falls immediately in love with her, even though he's engaged and he he's trying to rub the makeup off her face and she's fighting him and he says, stop or Papa will spank. Bad, bad, bad. There, So there's this weird, I don't know, I can't even say. It's, it was rough. It was a rough read to see how much uh, the misogyny there with Catwoman was. I mean, she's her, a badass in her own right. Of course, of course she is. But it was pretty rough. It was a rough 
read without a doubt. Ultimately, what we learn is that Batman is engaged. The character that Elle McPherson plays in the Batman and Robin movie is actually that character. So go all the way back to the very beginning and there is Julie Madison, Batman's fiance. And she's just written out eventually as they realized that for whatever reason, Batman was gonna have this weird, uh, obsessive, dominating love story with Catwoman. For the most part, these stories are a lot of Batman killing, shooting guns, pushing people off buildings, disregard for life, and the idea that Batman isn't a killer has yet to arrive in these first three years of Batman. So I can't recommend enough though. While, while it is hard to read because of some of the it really deep misogyny and some of the various art styles, knowing now that Bob Kane was ripping people off left and right and claiming their work, all of that notwithstanding, it has been a fascinating read. On to volume two. Make sure you subscribe because you never know when the Pop Gorillas will strike next. We are the Pop Gorillas. This is the show where we drop a spoiler-free review of anything from pop culture in less time than it takes to listen to a song. Room 237 is a documentary movie about obsessed movie fans over an obsessed movie director. It's meta. They're a bunch of crackpots. The most interesting section is the experiment one contributor conducted for an art house cinema wherein they superimposed The Shining in reverse as an overlay and screened it in mirrored. It doesn't reveal anything though. How could it? This was clearly not Kubrick's intention. I'll admit some of the coincidental synchronicity is cool though to the extent that I genuinely watched that version all the way through. It also serves as an excellent apparif too. I'll start by being honest. I didn't read the book. I find King's prose pretty impenetrable the majority of the time, and actually prefer experiencing the adaptations of his works fresh and unencumbered. You buy what I'm shining? A sequel even more belated than Blade Runner 2049, Doctor Sleep actually bears similarities to Villeneuve's visionary sci-fi in the way that it is reverent to the film that preceded it decades before and is of a piece with said original, but is also simultaneously entirely its own thing. Just like 2049, it's also bloody brilliant and deserved to be much better. It surprises no one to learn that McGregor is marvellous as the mature Doc Danny Torrance. He's the straight man in a film full of histrionic performances, but he imbues his Uncle Dan with a classic world-weary physicality. The star of the show, though, is undoubtedly Rebecca Ferguson as the enigmatic Rose the Hat. It serves as yet another example of why awards are inherently silly, as I find it hard to believe there were five better performances from any actor the year this was eligible for awards. Make room next to the child catcher in your nightmares, kiddies. The plot itself is deceptively simple and linear, and I'm sure for some, not me, a little ponderous. The True Not Cult are a group of steam vampires who stave off death by absorbing the essence of those that shine. For the first two thirds of the film, they get away with much red rum until they cross astral paths with Doc and Abra, who team up to take them down. Of course, the main draw of the film for many will be the return to the Overlook that takes place in the third act. This section does not disappoint. It's the only real-time sleep ever gets under your skin scary, whilst the recreation of scenes from The Shining both bygone, starring a favourably recast Wendy and bowl-cut young Danny, and contemporary are better than any VR simulation experience. Arranged by an assured and measured mind, 
like Flanagan's control of pace and frame and edit is masterful. On the evidence of this, his previously unseen by me hauntings have now leapt to the top of my spooky season watch list. Make sure you subscribe, as you never know when the Bob Grillet will strike next. One, two, three, four, we are Lady Parts! I'm going to talk about We Are Lady Parts. It's a six-part series on Channel 4 in the UK and Peacock in the US, and it's just freaking joyful. We Are Lady Parts follows biochemical engineering PhD student Amina as she becomes a lead guitarist in an all-female Muslim punk band called Lady Parts. I know, <laughs> it's actually as excellent as it sounds. This is no spoiler review, and I'm going to do my best to do that. But what I want to say is that this show does more in six episodes to show completely rounded and complex characters than I've ever seen in a TV show that's come before, and in ones that have 24 episodes and multiple seasons. Each major character is given time to breathe. Amina, Syrah, Bisma, Aisha and Taz are all allowed to be fully realised human beings and show the complexity of being both Muslim and women than any show that's come before. And on top of that is actually genuinely laugh out loud funny. It's occasionally heartbreaking, there were definitely times when I was close to tears. But most importantly, it's just it's just really joyous. It's just it's something that's so upbeat and it's really, really special for that. And we see these women actually being women, like fully rounded and complex. They're angry, they're funny, they're conflicted, they're completely sure of themselves at the same time as being self-conscious, you know, religion's really important to them, and of course, they're just all these amazing hardcore feminists, because how else would they be in this show? It's just really, really, really good. I read that the creator, co-writer and director, Nida Manzor, cites influences such as Spinal Tap, Spinal Tap, but for me, this show... It doesn't actually feel like that. It feels a lot more fresher and new. And it sits more comfortably with me with something like Michaela Cole's work or Catastrophe or Fleabag. And actually, you know, in terms of stylization, I see and feel a lot of sort of like that lovely kinetic energy that we get with Edgar Wright's work. And on top of that, it's just got absolutely banging tunes. And I think I've already mentioned it, but it is bloody funny. I'm not sure I'm actually going to be able to say that enough. And the cast plays the comedy perfectly. The jokes from earlier episodes have later payoffs and they just feel really organic and not shoehorned in. It's really special writing. But the main thing that I think is important about this show is that representation in the media we consume really matters. And We Are, La- we are Lady Parts is something special. It's about Muslim women who want to be heard. It gives them a real voice. And with that, You've got to start realising that that's not something traditional TV embraces. We haven't seen that before. And that makes this TV show important. So, go watch this show. Laugh your ass off. Let the songs rattle around in your head for days until you eventually download them and then listen to them on repeat. And mostly, let's just hope that there are going to be more TV shows like this made in the future. We are the Hot Gorillas. This is the show where we drop a spoiler-free review of anything from pop culture. Less time it takes to to a song. Tessellation from Martian Wit. Writing by Mike Phillips. Art by Hernan Gonzalez. Colors by Javi Lapara. Letters by Julian Darris and Stephen Legg. I apologize, Stephen, if I've said your last name wrong. Could be Leggee. It probably is, and I suck. Tessellation is a Kickstarter that I supported that you can get now at martianlit.com. It's a story where 
Instead of it being told in a traditional comic format, we explore the multiverse with three to four stories happening simultaneously. The multiverse is real. Every decision we make have consequences. And this book shows us how it could happen. There's some really smart, funny inside jokes that you're like, oh wait, that's definitely not our universe. I don't want to give anything away. This is totally spoiler free, but what I want you to do is pick this book up, free your mind from normal comic book storytelling. If you're interested in science fiction, if you're interested in the multiverse, if you're interested in high concept, this book is for you. You can read it multiple ways. You can read it like I read it the first time where you read it like a traditional comic, or you can read it across the top. The first few pages are standard comic book fare. Then it starts and there's a little break in the line so you know which story it is. And so you can follow it from left to right and just follow one story from left to right, go back to the beginning and follow another story from left to right. Or you can read it as it mixes up and see, ooh, if he did this, this would happen. And oh, but he did this and this happened. And it was a fascinating look at the multiverse. It's a fascinating look at ourselves, at humanity, what we're willing to do when we think we can get away with things, when we think we can't get away with things. What do we do when no one's watching? There's hubris, there's anxiety. It really makes us think about our own decisions a lot. This book was really thoughtful. It's 30 pages. Go to Martian Lit, pick it up. I cannot recommend Tessellation enough. This was a great, thoughtful, amazing book, and it shows the power of what comic books can do. There's no budget in a comic book, and so we can do this story, and from what I see, Tessellation 2 will be coming soon. So if you want to get on Tessellation, go to martianlit.com, pick that up. Make sure you subscribe, because you never know when the Pop Gorillas will strike next. We are the Pop Gorillas. This is the show where we drop a spoiler-free review of anything from pop culture in less time than it takes to listen to a song. I try as much as possible to be part of the positive platoon and not the adversarial army, but when it came to the 2016 studio fuck Suicide Squad, the truth was that, Margot Robbie aside, it was an unmitigated disaster. Gunning for something better is this clean slate cherry-picked sequel set somewhere amidst the convoluted new WBDC continuity. It succeeds with a plan. Come get some. Essentially a madcap metahuman expendables, this lines up an all-star cast as an all-second-rate supervillains and drops them into the ship, with Harley Quinn shoehorned, thankfully so, in there, with a little fanfare and a throwaway line of dialogue with explanation. The narrative drive and plot MacGuffin is surprisingly simple as we follow a single misfits on a mission through line to destroy a former Nazi experiment, now being run by the thinker on Corte Mortise. But the film experience itself was a little more tricksy employing elliptical editing and time rewinds to reveal information at the director's behest. Gory and Gonzo. It's never boring, but it is a little tonally uneven, and although I understand this is by design, it doesn't always work. What does is the casting and characterisation, most notably the returning Margot Robbie as a scene-stealing Quinn, and new addition Daniela Melikor as a heartfelt ratcatcher too, but also John Cena as the ironically named Peacemaker, and the gravelly and grumbled intonations of our one sliced alone as meme master and new Finn favourite, King Shark. What does is the action in set pieces, most notably a predator homaging jungle camp infiltration with a sting in his tail and Harley's self-rescue set to Lewis Primus, just a gigolo, I ain't got nobody, and decorated with Looney Tunes style flora and fauna. What does is the sheer level of frenetic fun on display, most notably during the opening assault on Corte Mortise, somewhere between Saving Private Ryan and Deadpool 2, and the multi-layered Jotunheim, no, not that one, infiltration sequence. 
Between Guardians and this, Gunn really has cornered the market on graphic and gratifying enhanced human collaborations. I'm all in on the already announced Peacemaker Limited series, and I'll keep my detachable fingers crossed that one day, the big two properties may come to an agreement to allow Gunn to team the Suicide Squad and the Guardians up. Starro things have happened. Make sure you subscribe, as you never know when the Pop Gorillas will strike next. We are the Pop Gorillas. This is the show where we drop a spoiler-free review about anything from pop culture in less time than it takes to listen to a song. Kevin can fuck himself. This is a show from AMC. It's created by Valerie Armstrong. It's produced by Rashida Jones. It stars Annie Murphy, which most people will know her from Schitt's Creek. There's a few other stars, Eric Peterson, Mary Hollis, and Bodine. She's fantastic as the supporting character, Patty. And what we see in Kevin Can Fuck Himself is a traditional sitcom about an asshole, overweight, guy from the Northeast named Kevin who treats his wife poorly, who is a misogynist, who's got a dumb best friend, whose dad is a loser and who's around, and who just does awful things that everybody thinks is funny. Then you cut to Allison, played brilliantly by Annie Murphy. Anytime Kevin isn't on screen, it's a regular drama. The the lighting is different. It's darker. The hues are darker. And whenever it's the sitcom, it's bright and there's a laugh track and it looks like a traditional sitcom where you can tell you're on a set. When we cut away to the Allison sections, or as we learn later, when Patty shows up or when Sam shows up, an old flame of Allison's or anybody, whenever Kevin isn't on screen, we are in this real world. So it's this fascinating look at the way that men treat women and the way that people watch TV and engage with TV. Why do we like this kind of stuff? What is it about these Kevin shows? And obviously this is a dig at Kevin James, but it's not just him. It goes back to Married with Children. It goes back to, which again, Married with Children, I always looked at as a satire, making fun of those things. But again, was it? Sometimes there's that line between is it a satire or is it the thing? And there's a lot of just these asshole TV guys who are so more interested in sports and their best friends and drinking beer and treating their wives like shit and the women who put up with it. And this is an eight-episode look at those shows, at those women, at the people who watch the Kevin shows, and the performances are outstanding. I think, actually, Eric Peterson, Alex Bonifer, and Brian Howe, the three men who who are only ever in the sitcom section, have a hard lift because they know what show they're on. And so they have to go all in and pretend they're on a sitcom when they know they're the villains of the piece. And it's really, so that's really smart. But Annie Murphy shines. Mary Hollis Ibadan, as I said, is amazing. Raymond Lee as Sam is good. The supporting cast is, is spectacular. Kevin can fuck himself. And he certainly can. Don't forget to subscribe because you never know when the Pop Gorillas will strike next.
Hiding. What could I be hiding? What could I be hiding? Voldemort's alive and 